Welcome back to the Mindful Hunter Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jay Nickel. This is the Monday Night Live show, and um, yeah, let's hook right into it. We've got a couple interesting things to talk about. I still have questions left from the Q&A last week, and then if we've got some that kind of pop up in the channel this week as we go, fantastic. We can get into that. Okay, I'm just going to readjust my screen here so I'm looking where I should be looking. <clears throat> okay, right out of the gate... Um, the interesting talk of the day is this, I guess, surprising news, conflict. I don't really know what you want to call it because there still hasn't been a, um, like an official release from the provincial government as far as what's actually going on up North. And I don't know, you know, what's, what's rumor and what isn't rumor. So First, what I'm going to do is just give a brief outline of what the news was, and then I'm going to tell you what I've learned since then, and then I'm going to speculate as to like what that could mean and what the implications may be. Um, so for starters, the actual release is, or the, you know, BC Wildlife Federation put out a video and maybe if somebody's listening in the channel, maybe just give me a thumbs up on the little chat and let me know that you can hear me and see me all right. Um, otherwise I can go to my channel and just have a quick look and make sure. Testing, testing. Okay. Everything's looking good. Back to the live. All right. So BC Wildlife Federation put out a video and essentially said this, that there was between the Treaty uh, Treaty 8 and the Blueberry First Nations areas, there had been um, a complaint that the hunting rights of the First Nations had been violated. Now, there was a court case and there was a decision that came down the court case that did actually support that this was the place or, or did take place and that there was, um, what, what, what do you call it? Like an infringement on the hunting rights of the, of the First Nations. Now, what's been the way the BC Wildlife Federation described it is that the infringement to those hunting rights did not come from other hunters, but in fact came from overly aggressive resource extraction. That was all they said, but typically what that means is oil and gas and, and any mining. But knowing what I know about the resources that take place in Northeastern British Columbia, it's predominantly oil and gas. So the argument was made that the, because of the overly aggressive resource extraction in the Northeast of the province, that had infringed upon their hunting rights. And so apparently... What the province did, and I've heard a couple different stories now, but on the video, it said that all moose hunting in Region 7B was going to go to LEH. There would be no more over-the-counter tags, and all caribou hunting was going to be shut down in Region 7B. So that was the initial kind of kind of release, which seems really severe, and if that's the case... It would be bullshit because I don't think you should be able to use our hunting rights as a negotiating tactic 
Because then what they said was they were going to allow the resource extraction to still occur because they had um, satisfied their hunting rights by, by limiting the hunting rights of the resident hunters in British Columbia that would therefore leave more game. And the issue that I have with this is that if it was the resource extraction that caused the issue, then it should be the resource extraction needs to be addressed to limit the impact. And it shouldn't be our hunting tags that are used in order to square the bill. Now, I want to take a minute and back up out of this because I made a post about this and then I had a whole bunch of... Um, I had a whole bunch of messages and other stuff come in and there's a bunch of different perspectives. So I want to make a couple things very clear. Number one, there has been no release from the provincial government as of yet. So we don't have any proof, for lack of a better term, that this is what is going to happen. Number two, some people are saying that it's reduced uh, caribou and moose counts that are at, that are the cause of the change in legislation, and it has nothing to do with these treaty right infringements. That may or may not be the case. We don't have any information to support this um, uh, at this time, so I so I so I don't know. Um, but it, but but I want to say this because if there is sound conservation practices behind the reduction in tags, then I one hundred percent support those reductions in tags and the sound management of the wildlife. However, I, I did have some information shared with me today that leads me to believe pretty firmly that that's not the case and that this is more of a negotiating tactic. Now, there is also another, and I want to say rumor, because this hasn't been substantiated by the provincial government or any you know reputable news outlet, that what's really happening is that the management of the wildlife is being given over to First Nations in certain areas. This rumor has been going around for years. I, I, I've i heard it from some kind of reputable people, which is what makes me think it's there, there's a little bit of teeth to it. Um, and, and there's precedent, and that precedent is logging. And so when there has been provincial logging rights on areas that overlapped with treaty rights, it is not, and I was in force for 15 years, I've worked for many First Nations, um, it, is, it is quite common actually to give the management of those logging rights back to the First Nations. And then they make decisions about you know, annual cuts and they're the ones who receive the money, but they also then have to pay for you know, the management of those, of those areas. And so that has happened before. So it's not out of the realm of the possible. Apparently the provincial government is supposed to be making an announcement by next week. I've got a request in to have the executive director of the wildlife federation, uh, come on the podcast and they want to wait until the province makes this announcement, which to be honest with you, I fully support because I don't want to dive too much deeper into this until we have both sides of the story. If it really is the case. Now there's one more really important piece of information that will just randomly came in today that is almost like one of the most credible pieces of information. So I'm, I, I was supposed to be taking my old man on a caribou hunt in Northern BC in September in British Columbia 
when you want to have a non-resident, he lives in Ontario, a company you want to hunt, you have to file a permit to a company. And you basically fill out all these forms and then you can you can buy tags for and have a non-resident under your supervision and you can you can go hunting. I've done this with my old man once before. So I filled out all the paperwork and I, I'm not going to say where we're going, but this is in region six, which is west of region seven. And it, I had thought all of this kind of conversation was, was circulating around region seven and that region six, nobody had even said anything to me about there being um, impact in region six. And when I got, I will, I'll, I'll read it to you guys live on the air. So basically I got the response from the province today about my permit to a company. And I, I want to preface this by saying I have filed, I've filed one of these before and I filed it equally early in the year. It was like maybe not February, but it was like March or April or something like this. So I get this email. Good afternoon, John. Thank you for your permit to a company application. We have placed your application on hold pending the new regional restrictions for Skeena for the upcoming 22-23 hunting season. As this season does not actually start until July 1st, 2022, the restrictions have not yet been established. There are some potential changes to the restrictions for the region, but they have not been finalized. At this time, we are recommending delaying any PTA applications for caribou for the entire region until a decision has been made on the direction the regulations will go. We will advise you when a decision has been made and will either issue your permit at that time or we will contact to you to see if you'd like to make any changes to your application if we are not able to approve your choice. So pretty clear, and, and let me preface this. When I fill, I filled this out for, my, for elk, for my old man before. So regulations come out every year in, in July. You, you can apply for these permits before the regulations come out. Cause it's an over the counter tag and there might be some changes, but it's never like over the counter tags are just going to disappear. Or is it because that's the only change that could occur in this, in this regulation that would, that would allow. So it, it is very possible that we're just going to lose caribou hunting in region six writ large, maybe there will just be a couple of units and they're worried that the unit I picked is one of them. Hopefully it isn't because if the population numbers are that low in there, then I probably picked a pretty shitty unit to take my old man hunting. But for, or they're aware of what's going on with these treaty negotiations and they've been given instructions that nobody, you know, you shouldn't be giving, you know, permit to a companies to anyone for caribou for these regions. Now, what I thought was interesting is that I did fill out a permit for caribou and one for moose, and they didn't mention the moose at all. So maybe it, the moose is not affected in region six, which would be, which would be good. Um, so anyways, I, I wish I had some more conclusive evidence. Here's the thing. I don't normally jump on bandwagons. I normally wait it out a little bit, get both sides of the story, 
kind of see where the tide's shifting and 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 try and make sense of it because normally the like the emotional support that everybody gives things right at the beginning it is like a little irrational and it takes a little time to for everybody to settle down and to make sense out of what is is going on. I think a lot of there's a lot of similarity with like what's going on with the truckers right now. Some people are so vocally supportive that it almost makes the the movement look poor because it's like there's you can be tastefully supportive. You don't have to be rude. You don't have to, you know, act poorly. You can there's a, there's a right way and a wrong way to support things. Um, and so, but when this news came out today, I saw it, I saw it happen yesterday that came out yesterday, the video. And then I got the email from the ministry today. And I was just like, this is too weird. Like how now caribou is being limited. Now I'm all the way over in region six. And now I'm being told I can't go hunt caribou over there either. So I'm not going to jump to any conclusions. I'm going to wait for the information to be released from the province and see where they sit. And I'm going to see um, if if it is indeed nefarious, which it, you know, I have a feeling in my stomach that it's slightly not great. Or maybe maybe it really is just sound conservation management and they're going to reduce some, some hunting opportunities to account for some reduced population numbers. And if that's the case, that's the case. And I support it if it is. So I am going to reserve judgment for now. Uh, but I still fully support um, taking action when and if required. So I'll update everybody as to what's going on. Okay. Somebody had sent me a question. And as always, if, um, if anybody has any questions, you can pop them in the chat and I'll, I'll keep an eye on them and, and try and get to them. Um, somebody sent me a question about archery. Hang on a second. Let me see if I can find this. All right. Well, I can't find the um, I can't find the initial question, but it kind of doesn't matter because all the guy um, had had wanted to know was um, okay. No, that's not him. All right, screw it. Stop looking. All the guy had wanted to know is. Advice on a first bow. And somebody else had made a comment on, on one of my other Q&As that I'll look up in a minute that had just talked about like, you know, how to get into archery in general. Um, so I'm going to give some very almost counterintuitive advice. And that is to buy a really nice bow. Now, most podcasts are going to do like, you know, what's the best bow under $500 or, you know, the cheapest bow to get into the market. And here's, here's the problem with that is that I like commitment devices. I like to take my time 
with decisions, think about them long and hard. And then when I do decide which way I'm going to act, I want to, I want to be decisive and I want to stay committed to one course of action. And one of my little mental hacks that helps me do that is I buy really expensive shit when I get into hobbies because then I feel so like guilty. Like I will, I I know I will feel guilty if I spend all that money and then don't stay committed to the hobby. So the first bow I ever bought is the only bow I've ever bought. And it's still the bow I own today. It's a Hoyt Pro Defiant 34. And I think at the time I bought, I bought the whole setup, right? So you got, you got your bow, quiver, uh, rest, sight, uh, release. What else am I forgetting? A bow bag. And I want to say the whole thing came to around 3,500 bucks. Now we live in Canada. Prices on equipment like that is super shitty up here. If you can drive down to the States, I highly recommend it. But I've been shooting that same bow for five years. I've probably killed a dozen animals with it. Um, it feels like an extension of my own arm. I know it inside and out. And part of the reason um, that I got that, that, that high of a quality of a bow is that I wanted to stay committed. And I knew if I spent that kind of money, I would. So here's what I would suggest. And I'm going to say the same thing about, about optics. Instead of looking for the, the best you can get on a given budget, if you have decided that this is truly important to you and it's something that you're going to do for a long period of time, then have the patience to wait it out until you can afford the right gear. Now, listen, there's exceptions. If you're really young and you don't make very much money, or if you're just in a hard spot in life and you know you don't, you honestly don't have any other choices. Um, I, I can relate. I've been in similar positions. Then, by all means, it's better to shoot something than than nothing. But I'm not. I, I, to be honest, I'm a shitty person to ask for budget recommendations because I don't. I don't tend to buy budget things. I tend to buy the nice shit. Only because, I mean, I'm 43, I've worked my ass off my whole life and I'm at a point now where I can afford nice shit. Um, and I, and I, and I like to nerd out on that kind of quality of gear. So, um, that's what I would recommend for archery. So take your energy and dedicate it to making that decision. And, and is this something that I want to stay committed to? And once you've reached that decision and decided it is something that you want to stay committed to, then find the money and buy the really nice shit. Okay. So now that you've decided to buy the really nice shit, um, how do you know which one to buy? And the answer is you should actually go shoot it. Here's the funny part though. If you, if you don't know what you're doing, you're not really going to know which one feels better. Anyways, what I would recommend that's kind of a foolproof, um, go with one of the two big guys, just go with Hoyter Matthews. I mean, there are lots of people that are going to say, oh, the prime shoots a little bit better. Like, oh, this draw cycle is a little bit better than that. And, the, you know, the back wall on the expedition is a little nicer or the PSE is, 
here's the bottom line. Like the two top brands are Hoyt and Matthews. You will never have problems selling a Hoyt or Matthews. You will never have problems getting most Botex to tune a Hoyt or a Matthews. They're both tanks. They will last forever. Um, and they're just... It, that's really all you need to know. So if you didn't know what you were doing and you lived in a place like Vancouver where we have very piss poor options for bow shops, I would say just buy the top of the line Hoyter Matthews. I'd probably stay away from the carbon Hoyts simply because it's an extra five or 600 bucks that you do not need to spend. So if you're a shorter guy, the new Ventum, and if you're a taller guy, the new, I think it's called like the High Line or the High Draw or something like that. It's a long draw aluminum riser bow. And then, uh, if you are a Matthews guy, I think that, you know, the new V three, three series is where it's at. In fact, if I was going to buy a new bow this season, um, that is probably the direction that, that I would go. I shoot Hoyt now, but I like the look of that Matthews. And I think that's what I would do. Now, if you kind of know what you're doing, and you've, you have shot a couple bows, and you live in BC, I recommend going on a road trip. This is like my kind of dream spring road trip. I'd like to go down to the bow rack um, because they've got everything under the sun sitting there, and I would love to shoot the Prime, the Hoyt, the PSE, the Matthews, um, all of them. I have been shooting long enough where I can tell the difference, between what I like and what I don't like. And I'd love to get it set up on spot by Botex that actually know what they're doing and then drive home. That's what I would recommend doing. If you, for the next guy up, who's had a bow for a couple of years and is now looking to um, step into something a little bit nicer. Now let's continue on that question. I'm going to, I'm going to go look up. I saved the Q and a um, from last week because I wanted to have a couple in my back pocket. No, that's for the sleeping. Yeah, I'm going to record a sleeping bag review for the Kelvin Aerolite sleeping bag. Um, that'll be out this week. Okay, here we go. Tips for a beginner archer. So I'm going to, I'm going to make this like a a, like a two part, or I'm going to, I'm going to aim this at two, two types of people, the beginner archer and the archer who hasn't shot yet this season, because I think the approach to practicing is surprisingly similar. Now, one note I'm going to make when I bought my first bow, he sold me a 65 pound bow, which is just a stupid thing to do to somebody. This is why I have a problem with the bow shops in Vancouver it just, it doesn't make any sense. He could have just sold me a, six, a 70 pound bow and dialed it back to 65 while I got used to it. And then we could have ramped it up to 70 and I would have had a decent bow. But because I bought 65 pound limbs, once I got used to shooting my bow, of course I wanted something stronger. So I went and bought 80 pound limbs. If you have an 80 pound bow, you need to be a little bit extra careful when you start getting back into the swing of things because you will not blow your shoulder out, but you just have a lot higher likelihood of getting some type of repetitive strain injury because it's a lot, it's a lot of bow. I shoot 80 pounds. Do I think you need to shoot 80 pounds? 
probably not. Um, it's probably more bow than I need. Um, but it feels pretty damn good when you smoke something at 30 yards with an 80 pound bow and a 560 grain arrow. <laughs> and it sounds like a baseball bat hitting a pumpkin. Um, but that that's beside the point. Just take everything I'm going to say with a grain of salt if you are pulling a really heavy bow. I believe in more frequent, shorter practicing sessions for a very good reason. So as a hunter, the only shot that matters is the first shot. And the problem is most of the way you see people train, they're training like they're archery hunters. Now, archery hunters need to go drop, I don't even know, whatever it is, depending on if they shoot 3D or Vegas, let, let, let's just say 50 arrows. Let's say on average at a tournament, you need to shoot 50 arrows. So these guys need to be in a place where they can go shoot 50 arrows with relative consistency. That is not what you need to do as a hunter. What you need to be able to do as a hunter is rock up to a situation stone cold, probably haven't pulled your bow back in three days because you've been in the back country and you haven't shot anything. And then you need to see something. And within two seconds, you need to put your game face on. You need to draw it back and you get one shot and that's it. So you need to be practicing for that type of environment, not 50 arrows over three hours. Now, all that being said, I'm not saying you only go to the range and shoot one and go home. But what I am saying is it doesn't do you any good to be warmed up and shooting the way you need to shoot by the 20th arrow. I always judge my progress by the first arrow of the day. I'm only as good as my first arrow. So if I'm if my groups are 50% tighter by the time I get to arrow 20, doesn't matter because that first arrow was the only arrow that was going at the animal. So that's the one I'm the most critical with myself. And that's that the shot that I'm training for every time I go to the range, which is why I like shorter, more frequent sessions. Um, I, even with how many arrows you shoot at an end. So what I used to do is go to the um, uh, range and have six arrows in my quiver and I would shoot all six, walk down to the end, walk back, shoot all six, walk down to the end, walk back. And I would shoot as many as I could until my arm started to blow out, thinking the more arrows I shot, the better. I, I also don't agree with that technique anymore. I agree with um, training your body and mind to feel comfortable in, 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 in in physical situations that produce success. So it's like, I want to train my body and my mind to feel a certain way. And that's like warmed up, but not burnt out. It's shooting good, but, and focused, but not bored. It's like that middle of the road. So now what I do is I typically don't shoot any more than four arrows, an end. And when I'm just getting back into, um, uh, shooting for the season, like I've taken the winter off, I typically don't shoot any more than 20 arrows in a practice session. I might only go practice for 15 minutes. And I might only go do that three, four times a week for maybe the first two weeks. Because I'm trying to train myself mentally to respect every single arrow that I lose, 
because if I'm thinking I'm going to go to the range today and shoot 200 arrows, you're just going through the motions. You're just trying to shoot as many arrows as you can so that you get through these 200 arrows and you can take your ass home. However, if you go to the range and be like, I'm only shooting 20 arrows today and every single one of these arrows needs to be capable of killing an animal. And every time I'm outside of that sweet spot, that's a failure. And that's an animal that I would have injured and would have gotten away. And you approach it with like that level of focus and that level of determination. You, it, it just, it, it takes you to a different place. And now here's the thing. I'm kind of going on and on about the psychological components of it, but really it's also the underlying physical components because what I'm doing is training my body to know how to come to, to like, full preparedness within that first arrow so that when I'm out in the bush and I see that animal, boom, like my body knows what to do. I don't need 15 arrows to be loosed before my body's like, okay, now, now we're good. Now we're shooting in the, in the 10 ring. I want that first arrow to go in the 10 ring. So just to recap, I wouldn't shoot more than three to four arrows an end. I wouldn't shoot more than you know, 15 to 25 arrows per practice session. And I would only practice, you know, three or four times a week for the first couple of weeks. Now, once you get that muscle memory built up and once you get your endurance built up, because what you're going to see is that your first few arrows are going to be a bit shaky. And then you're going to get the, the middle seven or eight arrows are going to be sweet. Your pin is going to float nice and solid. You're going to feel strong. You're going to, your, your vision is going to be sharp. And then when you get to the last few, it's going to start to fade away. Now, the more frequently we can shoot, the, the, the greater we can stretch out that middle. So the, the more of our early arrows and more of our late arrows mm-hmm. are of the same caliber or quality, um, as those middle arrows. So once you get your endurance built up, you can definitely start to lengthen those sessions. You can start to fling more arrows. That's totally fine. But I, but I would get away from this mentality that like more is more with archery practice because it's not, I would rather somebody go and shoot five arrows from five different spots at the range then shoot a hundred arrows from the exact same spot because that's what's happening in a real world archery situation. I've always been very proud of my ability to like come to full draw and, and maintain focus and clarity because I've watched other people and it's not like that with everybody. And I'm not going to try and take credit for that. I don't do any particular mental training or anything. I've just always had a knack of like, I tend to keep my cool in stressful situations. I can remember every second of almost every single one of my kill shots. Like I can see the little hairs on the animal. I can remember when the release went off. I can remember the sound, like I'm present for all of it. And a lot of people I've heard talk about it. Um, they, they black right out. They won't even remember what pin they were using. They can't remember where they aimed. Like it's just, it's a bit of a shit show. And I think some of that is just genetics. Like some people are just wired better than others. But anyways, I'm being really long-winded when I don't necessarily need to be. Let's just, let's wrap this one in a tight little bow. If you're just starting into archery, I'd save up money and buy really good shit because the better shit you buy, the more likely you are to stay committed to whatever task it is that's at hand. When you do start to practice, less is more. Think about every single arrow like your life depends on it. 
Don't shoot any more than 15 or 20 arrows a session. Don't practice more than three or four times a week. Once your endurance build up, I still wouldn't, I still today don't shoot more than 20 to 30 arrows when I'm in my peak. Uh, and, but I will, but I'll shoot every single day and I might even shoot twice a day. Like that's when you really start kicking ass and doing those 20, 25 arrow sessions. You do one in the morning and the one in the evening, you shoot like that for a couple weeks, you'll be on fucking fire. Like nothing will be able to stop you. Um, I would still go toe to toe with, you know, and, and you do see guys like do this. Like you will see Haynes, like, you, you know, he'll just shoot three arrows when you've been shooting as long as that guy did. Like I, I support that philosophy. 100%. You're not getting anything more after those three arrows. Okay. That's my two cents on, on archery. Once like my real archery practice starts to kick in, um, I'll do a lot more archery stuff. Um, okay. We had a couple questions pop up in the chat room. Joseph, good to see you. Thank you very much for the question, my friend. I know you're not really a quote unquote gun nerd, but I was wondering, are you going to be, um, reloading hand loading for your 300 PRC? Do you think ammo availability will be an issue for it? I like that round, but don't hand load yet and think it would be hard to find factory ammo consistently. Um, so you are, you're a hundred percent right. Um, it was one of my concerns actually. And I bought, I bought this gun from Omer at precision optics. And one of the things going into the deal was like, do you have ammo? Like before I even said, cause I was looking at the same gun in a 300 wind mag, which I feel more confident getting ammo for, and there's more variety. So if your gun doesn't like a particular factory load, you can run another half dozen different factory loads through it. And it'll like something. Um, but he told me he had two two different uh, factory loads in stock and lots. So I bought five boxes with the gun, um, and the gun is so dialed in and it's already sighted. So normally I would think you know one box you're just going to waste sighting the the thing in, but it's already sighted in, um, and I think that's a valid question. And you'll notice my bro Darren is in is in the chat room tonight shooting on the daily. And he is a quote unquote gun nerd. And he also has a 300 PRC that he's developed a load for a 212.4. Um, and I do think it is, it is on our list of things to do for me to go over to the island and, um, and have him help me set up a, a load. It's one of those things, just like I talked about the expensive archery equipment, I kind of feel the same way about reloading. Like it's on my list of stuff to do, but I don't want to do it until I have the time to do it properly. Cause I don't, even just, I would love Darren's help getting set up so that I could then come home and continue on my own. And that means investing in some stuff before I, before I, before I do that. But 100% it's on, it's on the radar. Um, uh, okay. Up next. And, oh, oh, in the scope, sorry. Um, it is scoped with a Leupold, uh, VX three, sorry, VX five HD. Actually, hang on one second. So this is the gun right here. Um, it's a thing of beauty. It's like, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous gun. 
Um, I'm super excited. I'd actually bought the scope before I bought the gun because I'm running a, hang on one sec. I'm running a Vortex Viper PST Gen 2 on my 300 Win Mag. And that scope weighs 28 ounces. And I actually love that scope. I'm not a big Vortex fan, but I have beat the shit out of that scope. I've never had to re-zero it. I've never had to sight it back in. It's never fogged up on me, obviously, other than, you know, the fog that you can wipe off. I mean, there's never been any anything inside that I needed to worry about. Um, I, I, the eye box is comfortable enough. Like I didn't really need to upgrade the scope, but that VX five HD is 19 ounces. You're saving nine ounces. That's over half a pound right on your scope. Like that's, that's insane. And the VX five is not a particularly expensive scope. I paid a thousand us dollars for that from a supplier in the States and they shipped it over and they just let it right across the border. No problems. So I'd actually bought that scope for my 300 Win Mag. And then when I started looking at the Fierce, I'm like, well, what would I put on the Fierce? And I'm like, well, I would put a VX5 HD. And I'm like, okay, perfect. My plan was to sell the 300 Win Mag anyways. I'll put the VX5 HD on the uh, 300 PRC. And then after the fall hunt with my old man, if I go to get rid of the Win Mag, it's, now it's a perfectly dialed in setup. Um, I can sell it with the scope on it. It's dialed in perfectly the whole nine yards. So yeah, VX5 HD, Leupold. Um, I've only kind of held it up to my eye a couple times in the house and I am super impressed, mostly with the size of the eye box. Like I don't know how many people have problems like getting perfect positioning and getting that full range of view in the scope. The Vortex, it's a little tricky. Like you gotta, you gotta know what you're doing, like be comfortable, but uh, the VX5, I feel like every time I lift the gun, it's just like, boom, it's right there. Like it just, it's perfect. The one thing I'm finding interesting about this gun is that it has a pistol grip. It doesn't have like a traditional rifle stock grip. So you hold it differently. Like you, you take a vertical position with your hand instead of like a, a bent position with your wrist. And it was weird at first, but then a buddy of mine told me it's actually much better for pulling it into your shoulder. And then as soon as I realized that's kind of what it was meant for, it, it felt, it felt like home. I was like, Oh, this is beautiful. So I'm hoping I'm waiting for one more piece to come in. I ordered a Picatinny rail adapter from Spartan precision. Cause I already have a Spartan precision javelin pro hunt bipod and the thing's like 300 bucks and I don't need two bipods right now. And because the Spartan Precision is detachable, I can put the Picatinny rail adapter on the Fierce, and then I can literally just swap the bipod back and forth. And I don't want to take this out to the range until I have the bipod, because I want to be able to take some shots out there that would replicate the shots I'm going to take in the field. So that should be here by the end of the, this week. So maybe next week I'll get to go to the range, and then I'll have, I'll have some like groupings to share and some more information, and I'll do a quick... Um, uh, like a, like a first reaction video or my first thoughts. Okay. Up next. Um, I know you've talked about waterproofing very loosely in terms of footwear. Curious to see what you do. I feel my regime is adequate, but definitely be improved for longevity. So I'm going to assume you mean like, what do I do to waterproof my boots? I have come full circle on waterproofing boots. So back when I was in forestry, the only thing that I would use was Obenelf's heavy duty 
LP, which just stands for leather protectant. This is like kind of famous on the coast. So when you're, when you work in logging and forestry on the coast, you always have to wear corks. And before anybody bought from Hoffman's or any of these places, like Vibergs half and halves are like the most popular corks you can buy. And they've got black rubber bottoms and then a black leather upper with like 15 lace holes in it. My favorite cork and bush boot still to this day. But you got it, but it's just old school. There's no Gore-Tex. There's no bullshit. It's like like 1.2 mil um, or 12 mil. I can't remember. New buck leather. Like it's just black leather. That's it. And then normally you wear the like the felt insoles. Um, otherwise, you tend to get blisters in the back of your heel where the rubber meets the leather. And so you would treat your boots basically every two weeks. Like we would go in for shifts, 10 and fours, 10 days on, four days off. And usually on my days off, I would treat my boots. And then you'd wear them for two weeks, you go home, you treat your boots. And you just do that over and over and over again. Um, and you would use Open Elf's LP. Now that is a, I think it's like a pine tar and a beeswax primary, primary solution. Like um, I've had really good luck with Snow Seal as well. So when you think about that, they're like really heavy duty compounds and you're kind of loading up the leather with, with as much of it as you can to the point where I'll heat the some bitches up with a hairdryer first and get them like warm to the touch and then rub on the, the, the protectant and it will like soak in lots of times I'll put on one or two coats, leave them out overnight or by a heater, let them all soak in and then give them another one the next morning. So that's what I did for my boots for years, worked all over all kinds of conditions, never had a problem. And then last year for my goat hunt, I moved into the Lat Sportiva Nepal GTXs, which are a full grain leather boot, but they also have a bunch of synthetic components on it. And on La Sportiva's site, it's like pretty hardcore. You want to use the Nick Wax. So I'm like, okay, I'll use the fucking Nick Wax. And it's shit. Nick Wax is shit. It doesn't do anything, in my opinion. And I was okay on the goat hunt because the boots were so new. That's the other thing. Most people think their boots are waterproof. And it's like, yeah, well, how many miles have you put on? How, 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 how beat up have you really taken these things or are you still just surviving on the initial Gore-Tex um, protection? Because Gore-Tex blows out, man. I, I don't even really feel like Gore-Tex has that strong of a place in boots. I like nice leather boots and then I'll waterproof the leather. So I started to rely on that Gore-Tex, Gore-Tex and Nick Wax, because Gore-Tex certain compounds will break down the Gore-Tex and having like silicone or beeswax or that kind of stuff, it clogs the holes. Here's what I mean. I'm here to tell you, fucking clog them because it doesn't do shit after the first two weeks anyways. This is coming from a guy who has lived, hunted, and worked in the Pacific Northwest for the last 20 years. And if boots are going to get wet anywhere, they're going to get wet here. So I do the whole Nick Wax thing, and then I go on my sheep hunt in last August, soaking wet feet. I'm talking like day one, we get out of the plane, and there's like knee-high grass. And if you know, if you know, you know, walking through that knee-high wet grass 
probably gets your feet wetter than almost any other thing on planet Earth. Even walking through a stream will not get my feet as wet as long as I'm moving quickly as walking through that grass. And it's because the grass is applying pressure. And that's the other reason that the Gore-Tex doesn't do shit. Gore-Tex works good when it's left alone in a vacuum. Like when you're wearing your rain jacket and it can just do what it needs to do, it works. But as soon as you apply pressure to the rain jacket, like if you start busting brush, the Gore-Tex breaks down, at least temporarily, because there are holes in both directions with the Gore-Tex. The only thing that's really deciding which way the water goes is, is, a, is a hydrophobic coating that is forcing the water out in, in one direction. But as soon as you apply mechanical pressure, the mechanical pressure outweighs the hydrophobic coating, and it just goes right back through the same holes. That's why every time you take your rain jacket on, wherever your your backpack straps are is normally wet underneath. You, th you think it's sweat, but it's not. It's because the backpack straps have like physically forced water through your your rain drag jacket, which is another reason why I always say wearing rain gear is not about being dry. It's about being warm because you, when you're hunting, you're either going to sweat because you're hiking up a hill or you're going to get wet um, because you've taken your rain jacket off. But either way, you're going to be you're going to be wet because if you're hunting in rain gear, you're going to get mildly sweaty. Anyways, I'm going off on a tangent. So my boots get like soaking wet to the point where like I thought my feet were going to start to break down because my, my boots were just wet every single day. And we're talking like some of the nicest boots on the market. I'm, and it, there's another caveat here to the treatment and that's gators. So I go through all that sheep hunt, wet feet the whole time. I'm on the phone with La Sportiva on my, on when I get back. I'm like, this is horse shit. Um, these boots are $700. I had wet feet for a whole sheep hunt. And they're just bending me over a barrel. Like every now and then you luck out and companies will just send you new shit when you complain enough. This was not happening. And fair enough. I'd had the boots for almost a year. I'd been on like three or four pretty crazy hunts. Like, ugh, I get it. So then I'm like, okay, I'm going to do a test. And I have that mule deer hunt with Spencer that was in like last week of October and it snowed like a blizzard, essentially the whole hunt. But before that hunt, I caked them sons of bitches with that open elves, heavy duty LP, like two or three coatings. And I wore gaiters. That's the other key because what happens a lot of the time is your pants are going to get wet and then you're going to suck water down into your boots through your socks because sock is just a wicking material. And if it gets wet up at the top, it's going to want to pull that moisture down into your boot. So that, and I've been meaning to do a video about this, but that is essentially my like ultimate bootwear recommendation is buying primarily leather boots, not caring about the Gore-Tex and what components may or may not wreck it, slathering like some type of beeswax or pine tar based protectant in there. I've heard good stuff about the Krispy Kreme protectant. Somebody's texted me um, about that. Um, and I've never used it personally. And personally, I don't really like Krispy as a company, but people did say they had good luck with it. So put beat the shit out of them with that stuff. And then wear some, and then wear some gaiters, and I think you're you're good to go through almost any situation you can you can possibly imagine. Um. Oh yeah. So, 
there will probably not be an elk hunt unless, and I don't know if you were here with the beginning of the podcast, but it, there's a possible chance I won't be able to take my dad on the caribou hunt if they shut down caribou in region six. And if they do that, I may get out after elk. Also, I've been lucky enough to have a couple friends since starting the podcast kind of reach out and, uh, you know, I might get invited to go out for elk for, for a couple days. So they're still probably one of my favorite animals to hunt, but getting my dad out for something this year kind of superseded my own desire to get out for elk. Um, I want to take him out for elk, but the bottom line is any of the elk hunting I know about in British Columbia that, that I would want to take my old man on is like hyper-physical. And I just don't think he's got it in him. He's 66. And I don't have any like personal edge. Like I don't have any of my own spots. And the last time I brought him here for an elk hunt, we went up the Musqua for nine days and we saw one cow elk. And it kind of broke my heart because I bring him all the way over from Ontario. It's supposed to be my province. I'm supposed to be this hunter who knows what the fuck's going on. And I wasn't able to get him on elk. And I'm really, I'm almost gun shy now. Like I'm very nervous to like bring him back out and give him another. Now he said it was the experience of a lifetime. Like that dude was grinning ear to ear the whole time. He's from Ontario. He's never been anywhere. Like uh, if you've taken a jet boat six hours up to Musqua, you feel like you've gone to fucking Narnia. Like it's, it's next level. So he still had the time of his life, but that's not the point. I, I I wanted to get the guy, you know, I wanted to get the guy an elk and, and I at least get some action, you know, as hunters, I don't even think it's as important to us sometimes to put one down as it is to just get a couple plays. Like if I go home and I've had a couple plays and I just wasn't able to close it together, that to me is somehow more palatable than having no plays at all. Like, Anyways, I don't, I don't need to go on and on about that, but small chance we'll see some elk this year. 2023 is year of the elk. So for anybody who follows me, you know, I build points in the States and I've got, because of COVID and all the rest, I've got points stacking up everywhere. Like right now I could guarantee a tag in Wyoming and Montana um, and there's, and I probably have a 20 or 30% chance of at least one more tag between, you know, potentially Utah, Arizona and Nevada. So I'm almost thinking like, how can I organize next year in 23, like take the entire month of September off, put two or three tags in my pocket and just put together like the fucking elk trip of elk trips, you know, get a couple buddies and just go at it. So anyways, that I think is going to be my, um, my goal for 2023. The other thing is with my 14 day, uh, solo sheep hunt happening this year, I kind of felt like that was like enough kind of solo hunting. And I wanted to focus on something more kind of family oriented. All right. We've been going for a little bit here. Why don't we do, why don't we do one more? Um, maybe we'll do a couple more. Um, this guy says, I'd love to hear anything you have to say on the topics of binos and solo shelters. So I, I can keep this one kind of quick and simple. And again, it's not going to be the most popular opinion, but when it comes to both, be patient and get the best you can afford. 
And you specifically ask about solo shelters. So if going into the backcountry by yourself is something that you want to get into, it's even more imperative that you take the best equipment that you possibly can with you because it's dangerous. And you, if something goes down, it's not like you can just crawl into your buddy's tent beside you and get out of the rain. There is no other tent. You're the only one. Um, personally, I like Hilleberg. If you're going to talk about floored shelters, I've had really good luck with them. I really like the people. I was able to meet and have Petra on the podcast. I think she has an honest desire to build a good company with quality products that's going to be around for a really long time. That's really important to me. It's not just about the product. I do like, it's important that I like the people who stand behind the company. For floorless shelters, I really like Kafaru. Um, I have their mega tarp, which is discontinued now. That's a great solo shelter. Um, if you stay in this game long enough, you're going to end up with a half a dozen shelters. And so instead of trying to think about what is the perfect shelter, think about what's the shelter that I'm going to be able to use for the most hunting possible. Now for, now for me, for the first four years I did backcountry hunting, I exclusively used a tarp, uh, like a floorless shelter, the mega tarp. I used it in everything. I had an ultralight wood stove for it. I used it in the snow in Wyoming. I used it in the desert in New Mexico. I used it everywhere in between. I used it in the Pacific Northwest. Um, everywhere I went, I used a floorless shelter. I don't know, you know, there were some drawbacks to it, but it was incredibly lightweight and it worked great. I don't know if I would recommend that for everybody. I would probably recommend something like a NIAC from Hilleberg because there, you can almost go in any condition in a NIAC. Um, whereas, you know, other shelters, if you go all the way to a four season, it's, it's going to be a lot heavier. And then, so what? So now you can do a couple, you can do a late season winter hunt. How many people are actually doing late season winter hunts? You know, with a NEAC, you can get all the way into October, November, no problem. And then you're doing spring bear again, back out on the other side. And then if it, if it's particularly windy, you've got more stability than a tarp. And, um, if it's buggy, you can actually zip it closed where you can't with a tarp. So I think if I was going to say somebody is starting out and they could only get one shelter and it was just going to be you by yourself, I think my number one choice would be the Hilleberg NIAC. And if you're going to get a tarp, I'm so out of the loop because I have my, um, I, I don't even know which tarp I would buy right now for just one dude. Kafaru doesn't really have any great options to be honest with you. Cause like the sheep tarp and the parrot tarp are too small. And then what are you going to get up like a sawtooth or something that's too big. So probably something by seek outside or somebody else. That's like a more of like a one man option, but that's what I would do. And for binos, I'm going to say the same thing. I'm going to say, save your money and do it right. I've always been a Zeiss guy, but I switched to the NL pures from Swarovski and the bottom line is that they're just the best binoculars you can possibly look through. And I've, I've spent a pretty significant time looking through a bunch of different binoculars and there's no doubt in my mind that they are the best. Now we could have a conversation about personal preference, right? Now 
that being said, I don't think you have to go all the way to the NL pure. Like, let's just say alpha glass. Like if you could get a set of used like a GeoVids, uh, Zeiss Victory, SFs, Swaro, ELs, I'd stay away from range finding binoculars. The glass tends to be inferior. Um, and, and, and buy used alpha glass. Don't buy new beta glass before, like if you've only got enough money, um, just make sure there's no scratches. And most of the warranty programs are really good these days anyways. So that's what I would do. Um, and if you want to know more, go back through my catalog of, um, videos on YouTube. I've done a bunch on different types of optics and I actually had to send my Zeiss Harpia spotting scope over to Germany to get warranty repaired. And it's been gone for four months. And I just got an email on Monday that it's on the way home. And I haven't done one of like the, for 2022, like my whole optics system, like the tripods I'm using, the binos I'm using, the spotting scopes I'm using. I haven't done one of those. So as soon as the spotting scope gets back, I will do one of those and talk about why I use the equipment that I do and why I've built the system that I have and how it all kind of works out for me. So, all right, guys, that's a full hour. And the whole goal was to kind of keep these things short. So that's another episode of Monday Night Live in the books, a little bit of drama and controversy up top, and then a little bit of Q&A out the back end. So we will do this again next week. I want to thank everybody who came out and you know what? Let's start giving some shit away because I think it's really cool that you guys are hanging out on a Monday night. So I think what we'll do next week, I will pick somebody, maybe I'll use like a little random number generator or something, but we'll have everybody ask a couple questions. And then at the end of the show, if you've asked a question, I'll put your name in a hat somehow electronically or digitally. And we'll, we'll do a, like a free swag pack. You can have like a hat and a shirt and, um, some bumper stickers or whatever. So maybe that's a bit of an incentive to, to come back next week. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you soon.